Good morning. So thankful to be here with you this morning. If it sounds like my voice is gone, it's because I had sinus issues last week and not because I was at a ball field until midnight 30 screaming, screaming and yelling at people. I mean, not at people, excuse me. So hopefully I'll be able to power through this this morning by the grace of the Lord. Today we're going to continue in Romans chapter 12, uh, looking at verses 10 through 13. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to get through, but we'll go through them relatively quickly. We're in our second sermon on Christianity in motion, what Christianity in action looks like. Would you pray with me before we begin? We can ask God to meet with us this morning. Gracious God. Good and perfect in all of your ways. There is none like you. You are holy. You are kind. You are loving. Infinite and matchless. Wonderful. Sweet. Our Father. Would you guide our hearts and our minds to be in tune with your will so that we may know what it's like to serve you so that as we serve you, we imitate you so that the world may see Jesus. Would you sharpen our minds today? As we hear your word, will you let it take root in our lives? Would it affect us in a way that changes us and makes us more like you? Help us to be affectionate, tender, merciful, empathetic, compassionate, loving to one another. That the world may see our love. And know through that love that Jesus Christ is alive and well and living in us. Lord, that we may fulfill the law and the prophets by these two things. Loving you with all our heart, soul, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. God, you are good. And we expect great and mighty things from your word today because your word is true. It is living, it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So I pray, Lord, that as I disappear, that you increase and your word goes forth as preeminent in this message today. Thank you for being so good. Thank you for loving a sinner like me. I will forever be grateful. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his mighty sake. Amen. We have discussed over the last few weeks the necessity and the importance of spiritual gifts in the life of a believer. We have discussed the work of a Christian. How 
what we do is founded in the Holy Spirit in us. And then the Holy Spirit expresses himself through us, through works for the edification of the church. For the edification of the body of Christ as a whole, but I think even more specifically and precisely for the edification of the local body of Christ. But what we have seen, what we saw last week and what we will see today is that our spiritual gifts, the effectiveness of those gifts and the Christ centeredness of those gifts are founded and grounded in our love one for another. In our, not just our feelings about each other, but our deep rooted, genuine love for each other. We then, friends, are not defined by how gifted we are, but we are defined by how we treat one another in love. That our love is sincere. It is meaningful. That our love is without Mask. It's not hypocritical. Our love is not hiding our true feelings in order to spare feelings, but it is considering the feelings of others and the needs of others as we deliver the truth. It is empathetic. It is slow to anger. It is compassionate. It's kind. Our love, Paul says, is agape love. Meaning a love that can only come from God by God's people because it's been given directly from Him as the greatest gift of the church. Love also must be discriminating. Love must hate what is evil and cling to what is good. True love is discriminating. It clings to objective truth. True love clings to what is right and it rejects what is not. So true love is discerning. True love is seeking. True love finds the truth and it clings to that like it clings to no other. This is how we treat each other. We seek what is true. This is why I said last week that we must be willing to take. This doesn't mean we, we are pushovers. It doesn't mean we get run over. But we must be willing to take a knife in the back every once in a while in order, to, in order to make sure that what is historically true is either true or false. That mean, if, you don't, if I didn't say that clear enough, that means giving the benefit of the doubt because of what is historically true. If someone has been historically trustworthy and honorable and kind and loving and for a moment they're not, we need to be willing to give them their space in order to get back to what is true about them. 
how we respond to the world in this objectivity is we respond and we follow what is true as opposed to what is stated to be true. Friends, we need to be careful to define and understand every term, every word that we say before we hold fast to it, before we cling to it, before we preach for or against it. Because at the moment, everything is being redefined. And what we need to understand, my friends, is this, that it is not just lazy to be lazy in the world we live in, but it can also be unloving to be lazy in the way we approach things. If we do not seek out, if we do not have a Berean mentality where we where we measure everything against the word of God, it's not just lazy, but it's unloving. Because we may be leading people down a path that is unwittingly and unknowingly ungodly because we have not chosen to do the groundwork, to do the labor of finding what is true. Of everything a Christian should be noted by, we should be noted by truth seekers and love seekers. And the two of those go hand in hand often. Love is costly. Love is truthful. Love is discerning. Love is selfless. Love is self-denying. Do you know how I know this? Because Christ modeled every single one of those for us. And He said, do this. Do this. He received the poor and the sinner and the rejected, but he didn't receive them. He received them as he as they were, but not so that they would stay where they were, so that they would seek truth and be changed by that truth. He was discerning, but he was also gentle and kind. He was a person that sought truth, but for the most part, his words, especially for the seeker, his words were seasoned so that they were palatable. They were kind. Christ, for the, for the wrong people, Christ pushed them away. His truth for the wrong people, for the people who were not going to seek after Him, it pushed them away. But for those who were seekers, His love and His words, His truth drew them in. And that's the way we ought to be. We ought to speak truth in a way that draws people in who are seeking. And it pushes people away who never would in the first place. Now, you know those terms have been defined a million times. I'm going to say it, but I don't need to. Those who are seeking are only seeking because the Holy Spirit has drawn them, has pricked their heart. And those who are not, are not seeking because they are without God in this world. Last week we saw how Christian love should be defined in a general way. This week we're going to see how Christian love is displayed. In the original language, Romans 12, 9 through 13, is simply placed kind of this way. Romans 12, 9 shows love in a general way, while Romans 12, 10 through 13 shows love in action. Romans 12, 9 is giving us the ground floor for love. It must be at least this. 
It must start at this. Romans 10-13 says, As it is demonstrated as you live your life, it must be consistently, generally, and hopefully overwhelmingly displayed in these different ways. Now you will notice something about these qualities of love that we will, we will study today. Every one of these qualities takes time. Every one of these qualities takes effort. Every one of these qualities needs room to grow. Every one of these qualities will be a work of the believer. And every one of these qualities will prove to us that we have been duped by Disney. Love can be magical. Love can be gushy. Love can be based on feelings. But if we watch only princess movies, that was what we would believe that all love is. Love is only magical and full of gushy moments. And it all sort of works out in the end, even though there's a little bad in the middle. Love, according to Disney, always means happily ever after. Even the bad moments most of the time are only playful and fun. If you've lived any time on this earth, if you've had to bear with another person in love, you know that Disney lied. Love is difficult. Any real love hurts. It costs. It demands. And Christian love is no different. Christian love is the example of costly love. But this is the love that God defines as absolutely necessary for a believer. Costly Demanding, sacrificial, putting yourself out there, being willing to be hurt, vulnerable love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this type of love is to be sought after for a belie- a, by a believer over all else. He says, you can have everything. You can have everything. You can have the spiritual gifts. And not have love and you are nothing more than a gong or a clanging cymbal. But he's just a noisemaker. Look at me. Look at all the gifts I've displayed. You make a show. But that's about it. He doubles down though. (coughs) He says in 1 Corinthians, if you have all knowledge, if you understand mysteries like no one else, but you have no love, he doesn't just say you're missing the mark. He says you have nothing. Nothing. If you can interpret dreams, if you can tell people what the future is going to be like, if you can help people with investments in their spiritual future and their uh, financial future, if you can see what it's going to be, the mysteries of the world, and you don't have love, it's not that you're just missing the mark a little bit, but you have nothing. And then he says, if you give all of your possessions, he triples down, I guess, if you give all of your possessions, 
He says if you give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, you have gained nothing. Here he uses the pinnacle, three pinnacles of commitment for the believer. Three areas where we would be assured that if we were doing these things, that we were, we were right on point for the Lord. And he says, but if you do them without an attitude and a spirit of love, why do them at all? Because you've gained nothing. How then is Christian life in motion seen? Get ready. Because there's a list. It's exciting. The first, deep brotherly affection. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. There are, Paul says in verse 10, love, love. The first part, he says, love, love. There are two words used for love here. Two different times he says love in this little small sentence. He says, love one another with brotherly love. There are two words here in the Greek. One is philostorgoi. It means devoted to in love. And the other is, you might be familiar with this word. The other is Philadelphia. It is brotherly love. Now you must see this. Uh, this is not how we love the rest of the world. This is how we love the body of Christ. Now we are to love the world. We are to have compassion for the world in a deep way. But we should love the body of Christ differently. How does Paul say we should love the body of Christ? He says deeply devoted, close knit, mutually supportive like a family. He says Love, love. The King James uses the word, the word kindly affection. The root word of kindly is kin. Uh, King Jimmy says, love people like, love the body of Christ like family. Love and treat our Christian brothers, especially in our body, like we would family. Do you know why? Because the cross of Christ and the Spirit of God binds us closer together than our own flesh and our own blood. You don't believe that that's true? Some of you have heard this, but if you don't believe that that's true, in Matthew 12, Jesus was told by onlookers, Hey, your mother and your brothers want to come talk to you. And Jesus says, Hey, these people, you see these people here? The ones that are doing the will of the Lord, the ones that belong to, to me, the ones that belong to the Father, those are my brothers. That is my mother. Those are my sisters. As difficult as it may be for our brains to grasp, our deepest and loving, most loving affections, I, listen, I'm being as literal as I possibly can be. I'm not being hyperbolic to prove a point. As, as deep and as affectionate we could be, those are to be reserved for God's people more than anyone else. I'm being literal. I'm not 
trying to, I'm not trying to exaggerate to prove a point. More than blood. More than son or daughter if they are not a believer. Now we are to love the world. We are to be compassionate and kind and empathetic. And we are to, as much as we can, display all of the things that Christ calls us to display to the church. But we are to love the body with our deepest and our richest affections. Not just, this is not just for professing Christians, but like Jesus said, the one who does the will of my Father, the one who puts love and words into action. Again, this is not, this doesn't mean you have to forsake the love for your own flesh and blood, for your own family. Does not mean you have to forsake the love for the lost. But it does mean that as we grow in Christ, we will develop an affection for the body of Christ that is unsurpassed. Unsurpassed. Incomparable to the love that we have for anything or anyone in this world. Paul says, love, love. Deep brotherly affection. What's another one? Giving preference to one another. Giving preference to one another. He says, outdo one another in honor. Paul is saying, as it pertains to honor, lead in giving honor away. Lead in giving honor away. Hear me. True love means getting at the front of the line to give honor and not receive honor. True love means being at the front of the line to dispense, to encourage the body of Christ by dispensing honor and not pouncing while you're waiting to get the honor that you think you deserve. (coughs) True love in action does not wait to be praised. And if we are praised because we are also growing in humility, we will naturally or more naturally as we grow, deflect that praise toward Jesus. True love is not resentful when others are recognized, but it celebrates the work that they are doing. True love is not resentful when we aren't recognized, but it celebrates that all glory is to Christ for the work that we have done. True love is doing everything that we are doing as unto the Lord, so that if the only recognition we get is Christ saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, it will be more than enough. Exceedingly Enough. Philippians says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. We sometimes as Christians have that if a tree falls in the forest, but no one's around to hear it mentality. Here it is sometimes, even if we don't verbalize it in the way we act. 
if I do something for the church but no one's around to see it, did I actually do something for the church? <laughs> if I do something for the Lord but no one's around to see it, did I actually do something for the Lord? Church, that our mentality would be, I'm going to do as unto the Lord because He's the only one I care about seeing it. And if no one ever sees it, if there's no recognition, my hope is not built in the praise that I can get from someone else, but my hope is built in the honor and glory of Christ Jesus. Christianity in motion is putting others first. It's preferring others. It's giving honor instead of needing it, instead of longing for it. Do you know why this is true? Because salvation in Christ is the most secure place a person can be. And naturally, secure people don't need a lot of reassuring. It's nice, right? It's nice in your marriage to get reassuring. It's nice when my wife says, hey, you've done something nice. You've done a good thing. It's nice when I tell her she's done a good thing. But if our marriage is strong, if our marriage is solid, we're just secure in that commitment, in that love. Listen, Christians are in the most sure place possible. And when we're secure, we don't need people to remind us we're good because we're good. Yeah, it's nice and it will happen, but it's not something we have to seek to find. Secure people don't need to be constantly puffed up. But secure people are able to give credit to where credit is due because they feel it on a real level themselves. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be zealous for good works. The beginning of verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. This is simple. Paul says, in regards to what you are doing, don't be lazy. In regards to what you are doing, don't be lazy. Paul here is not saying, do everything and do it awesomely. He's saying, when you choose to do something, do it well and with great fervor. When you choose to work as unto the Lord, do it well and with great fervor. Fervor, never lacking zeal. Love in action is doing everything as if we are gathering up an offering to put at the feet of Jesus. That is with all of our ability. That is with all of our zeal. And if you, I'm not ready. Now I know sometimes I live this way, but I'm not ready to give half-hearted gifts. I'm not ready to lay those down at the feet of my Savior when He gave everything. Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in doing good. Now this shows up in many ways. Do not grow weary in Christian service. Whatever you choose to do to serve the Lord in the church and in the community, do it with fervor. Do it with zeal. Do not do it half-heartedly. Do not do it in a lazy manner. Hey friends, listen. 
If you can't do what you're doing with zeal, stop doing something and go after what you can do with all that you have. It's better to do one or two things great than a bunch of things. Eh. And I don't mean great in the successful sense. I mean great in the effort sense as unto the Lord. Friends, if we do everything that we are doing with the best of our ability, with great zeal, we will always, always, without fail, succeed. Even if the results aren't always as favorable as we would like them to be. Not just doing what needs to be done. Not just, now I want us to meet the needs and I want us to be people that see, we see a need in the church and we go after it. But that can't be all that we do. We can't just be people that just meet needs because they're there. We have to go after them. We have to pursue them. We have to give our best because ultimately every act is an offering that we are gathering to place at the feet of Jesus. And we must give our best. Hey, Christian service Parenting, parenting, it is hard. But friends, I believe this to the glory of the Lord. God placed little image bearers in your life so that you could persevere and raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And as hard as it is, especially you stay at home moms, we should attack parenting with zeal. With zeal. Listen, friends, we should work. Hear me, I know I'm going to sound rude. I know I'm going to sound harsh. We should work to make our kids subservient, obedient. We should work to make our kids pursue truth. Not just behave. Not just don't make me look bad. Not just why can't you be less annoying? We need to make our kids obedient truth seekers. And it takes effort. We can't just, when our kids are disobeying, we can't just yell across the room, you better stop it for the tenth time. We have to go to our kids, our children, this is a real life demonstration here. We have to go to our children, we have to look them in the eyes, and we have to tell them what they're doing and why it displeases the Lord, and why it displeases us, and how they can do better. And we have to do that over and over and over again until it makes us want to vomit and it makes them tired, but eventually they get it. It cannot be, we cannot be people who just say, behave. And even if we don't use those words, we basically say that. <clears throat> Christian parenting. We have to be zealous or we will be run over. We have to be zealous or we will lose all track of time. All track of time. And they were, they were two and we said we're going to do it. And then they're five and we say we're going to do it. And then they're ten and we say we're going to do it. And they're 18 and we say, I thought I raised him in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and train up a child in the way they will go. And they're gone. You've trained them up in the way they will go and they've abandoned the faith. 
Because we are zealous to see our kids obey and seek truth. It's a letdown, but I have one more. In our business dealings, we should work well. And we should be diligent in everything we should do. We should be the best bosses and the best employees. It doesn't mean we're going to have every day perfectly. But in general, the people that we work with and work for should see Christ in the efforts that we put forth. Managers should want us as employees and employees should want us as managers. We should model work ethic. We should not model the minimum required work ethic of the company. We should model the work ethic that is gathering jewels, that is gathering an offering to the high king of the universe. In everything we do, we are doing as unto the Lord. May we never lack zeal. Fervent in spirit. Be fervent. The word here literally means Boil over. Boil over in spirit. Now this is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? Some of you would like this to be the Holy Spirit and you want to boil over here in the Holy Spirit. But this is a Christian spirit or attitude that bubbles over because of Holy Spirit indwelling. This is a personality that reflects a changed life. This is a generally... now. Understand what the word generally means. This is a generally under, uh, positive outlook. This is a generally joyful disposition. This is a generally welcoming spirit. This is a generally generous spirit. This person is easy to be around. And in the groups that they belong to, they quickly become irreplaceable. When they're gone, the group notices. Not because they get a break, but because they're missing a link. It, you laugh, but you know those people. You, I, sometimes you might feel like I'm that way. You know those people, but when they're gone, you feel like you get a break. Because they're a, a, they're a work to be around. But someone who is bubbling over because of the Spirit of God, when they're gone, the group misses them. Because there is an attitude and a spirit and an excitement and a fervor and a general joyous disposition that is missing. The Christian spirit boils over and it can change the attitude of a group. I have, I have not, the reason I don't have a voice is because I put this into action this weekend. Our, our so, Ellie's softball team is a bunch of Ellie's, but just a little bit less shy. They, none of them are killers. None of them are like the girls we play. We beat this team, and they're you know they're from the Delta, so you can't blame them. They don't know any better. They don't have any home training. We beat this team, and this girl, this group of eight-year-olds, when they were they were doing elbows because of Corona, this group of eight-year-olds were elbowing our girls in the guts as they were walking by, not elbow to elbow. Now you say that's no home training, but those are, those are just killers. They'll probably be very successful at doing something but not have very many friends. Um, but I lost track because I was telling you about the killers. We have a bunch of timid spirit girls. I have discovered 
And it's been confirmed by other people. Our coach is, she's like, don't talk to the umps. Don't talk to the girls, our girls in the dugout. So I was like, I'm going to shut down. I'm just going to, believe it or not, I sat there for a year and was relatively quiet. Just kind of watched the games. And then I said, you know what? I got to be in this. The team needs me. The team, the team needs me. And so, I call it a coincidence, but for the last two tournaments, I have been joking with the girls, saying funny things and saying their numbers in a weird way, like 10 is 1-0, you know, and just being stupid. But they loosen up. These girls who are so uptight, they loosen up. Last two tournaments, they've won the championship. I'm not saying it was me. I don't need the praise for that. I'm securing my beliefs. The point is, if we have a generally joyous spirit that overflows from a genuine life that is changed by God, the power of the Holy Spirit, it can change the attitude and morale of everybody around us. This is why we were so murdered during coronavirus. Because we had a bunch of attitudes, but nobody. We had a bunch of attitudes. We didn't, we were, we, and, and we were all focused heavily on the cruddy ones. We were all focused heavily on the moments of weakness. And not the moments of positivity. We need community. We need to be around each other. We need to be in the presence of each other to feel that Spirit, that overflow of that spirit. And Paul says it here. Paul says, Paul says, be fervent. Boil over so that when you're gone, the church knows. Not just because they get a break from you. <laughs> fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I think they all sort of go around this. But I think he sort of predicates serving the Lord by saying, be zealous be fervent and serve in that way. Serve the Lord. When we do not lack zeal, when we are boiling over in spirit, we are ready to serve. Godly zeal and a godly spirit almost always leads to godly service through the power of the Spirit of God. And service is how we show often show our love and affection for others. It isn't... Excuse me. It isn't necessarily about doing. It must be sort of set up by these characteristics, but it isn't necessarily about doing. It is about being grounded in love. It is about finding needs, both physical and spiritual, and just being willing to stand with people and help people as much or as little as they require. Again, if our service is an offering that we're laying down before the Lord, if our service is a demonstration of Christianity in motion, what does our service say about our faith? Rejoicing in hope. Point number 100. I don't even remember anymore. F. Rejoicing in hope. Verse 12 says rejoicing in hope. Hope here is rejoicing in something that God has promised but has not yet made visible. Specifically, this is the hope in the return of Christ. It is also the hope that He will make 
all things new. It is also the hope that in that time we will be like Him. This is not a hope like the world has, where our primary basis for hope is built on something temporal. It is hope not based on something that will be cut off. But where the world's hope ends, where the world's hope cuts off, is just where ours begins. The end of their life is where it's over. The end of our life is where ours is most vividly and truly demonstrated. One commentator said this, the hope of the glory of God in which the apostle here affirms that Christians ought to rejoice is provided as an important part of the believer's armor, a helmet to cover his head to defend him against the attacks of spiritual enemy, enemies. It supports him when he is ready to be cast down. It soothes the bitterness of affliction when the believer is resting on the promises of God. In prosperity, it elevates his affections. And fixing his expectation of the glory that shall be revealed disengages him from the love of this world. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. I've got it as G. Patient in tribulation. While waiting for our hope, we will be met with tribulation. We will be met with affliction. We should, through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit, be patient and endure. This does not mean we have a fatalistic mentality. This does not mean that we just accept the, the trials and affliction as the way it will always be. This does not mean we have to accept and say, well, we're being crushed now. We must always be permanently crushed in order to obey the Lord. That's not true. This is being patient in tribulation is being willing to to fight through to endure the affliction while trusting and waiting on God's resolution and not ours. Waiting for him to pull us out or to give us the strength to endure. Knowing that with certainty the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. Love in action is being secure in the work of the Lord. To be able to be patient, even in deep affliction. This is not being perfect in trials. This is responding as any human would be. In trials, we respond like a normal human. We cry, we mourn, we suffer, we hurt, we question, we wonder, we do all of those things. But friends, you need to know this. We can do all of those things and still trust that the Lord will resolve whatever is in front of us. Trust that if He does not resolve it in the way that we want Him to, He will give us the strength to help us endure. Patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Constant in prayer. The key word here is continuing. Continuing in prayer. This is not being good at praying. This is not being eloquent in prayer. This is not being fancy. This is not praying in the King James Version. This is not praying all day long. This is a life that models consistent and persistent prayer. If you pray 10 small prayers a day, 
Keep on, brother and sister. Keep on. Paul says, continue in that. If you pray one large prayer a day, keep on. Continue in that. If you pray everything that comes to your mind like a machine gun all day long, keep on. Continue in that. <clears throat> if you have nothing to say and you just sit in solitude before the Lord expectantly, keep on. Continue in that. Luke 11 we see the Lord, He gives the model prayer, our Father who is in heaven. We know that prayer. And then after that, He says this, Luke 11, verse 5, And He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to say before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs and I tell you ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open what father among you if his Son, ask for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who have asked? Friends, the key is not to preach, to pray like a preacher. The key is not to pray like somebody that you've always idolized. The key is to pray expectantly and continually and pesteringly. The key is to pester the Lord in a, in a God-honoring, Holy Spirit-glorifying way. Ask big things of God. Believing. And ask a lot. Ask often. I am convinced of this more than almost anything. The reason we have not is because we ask not. And then when we ask, we ask only halfway believing. Imagine what the good giver of great gifts will do when we come to Him believing and expectantly. How much more will the good giver of good gifts be willing to give His children? But we pray. We keep praying. Persistently. We pray with patience. Knowing that we might be in our trial. Knowing that we might not get the answer that we are exactly looking for. But the Lord will find and have not find. The Lord will get His resolution. Friends, have you ever considered that the Lord might be withholding something from you just to teach you to pray? Have you ever considered that? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've never gotten the answer. I've asked and I've not received. Have you ever considered that the Lord wants you to depend on Him? That the Lord wants you to go to Him? And even if you have to ask for it every day for the rest of your life, 
and all that's developed is a person who prays like God requires, it would be worth it. If God never answers that prayer, but he makes you a prayer warrior, wouldn't it be worth it? Constant in prayer. I'm tired. If you'll, if you'll give me a few more minutes, I'm going to persevere. I want to quit, but I'm going to keep going. Contributing to the needs of others. This is not just money. It's not just resources. It, but it's deep spiritual needs. Money is easy to give. Physical needs are easy to meet. Time, emotion, care, those are difficult. The deepest needs of others, friends, are not physical. They may think they are at the time. The deepest needs of others are to know that there is a God, know that there is an answer for sin, and to have community. And we have the great and awesome ability and knowledge to be able to meet those, the three, I believe, deepest needs of every human being. To know that there is a God to know his name, to know that he has the answer for sin, and to build deep and lasting community around those answers. Contribute to each other's needs. Yes, we invest in physical needs, but anyone can do that. Christian love and actions meets people's, meets spiritual needs also, and maybe even primarily. <coughs> Hospitable. And seek to show hospitality. I'm going to shorten this one up a little bit. It's simple. We talked about this back in June when we met here for the first time. Open up your life. Open up your heart. If you're type A and your whole life is scheduled and you haven't scheduled time to be hospitable, I'm not kidding. You might snicker. I'm not kidding. Schedule time to be hospitable until you're hospitable. Schedule it until you're hospitable. You're like, oh, it seems so disingenuous. Is it more disingenuous to not be hospitable or to schedule time for hospitality and be hospitable? Schedule it. Be hospitable. Set a time, set aside time for people. Let people stay over a little later than normal. Let people come over a little earlier than you want. Be a little inconvenienced. Welcome the stranger, extend a kind word, but also extend your life. Make personal connections with people. Engage with people. Stop making surface connections. We have enough of those. We don't need those. You might not want to do it, but we need deep connections. People need to feel real community. What else other than Christ do you think distinguishes the church from the rest of the world? It's not just deep connections. If they want that, they can go to the Lions Club. If they want that, they can have a softball team. Because I'm telling you, our softball team does church better than we do sometimes. Our softball team does community better than we do sometimes. I'm just being honest. It's not just about community. It's about Christ. But there has to be deep connections. And that comes through hospitality. Make meals a priority. 
You think we just do the MC meal just because we thought, oh, this would be cool to eat together. They did it in the Bible, so we must do it, yeah. No, we do meals because for, for throughout all of history, learning, knowledge, and life was passed down in the field and at the table. We need to see the field and the table as ministry opportunities to develop deep connections and make ourselves hospitable. Make room at your table. Be attentive. Listen, it's hard for me because sometimes I know what people are going to say before they say it. And I've already got my answer ready for what I knew they were going to say before they said it. That's not very attentive. Being attentive is trying to shut your brain off to let people talk, let people answer, let people have a word, caring about what they're saying. The most attentive people, it's like they're magic or something. The most attentive people even remember it the next time they're around you. I don't know how they do it. I barely remember what I said to you last week. The most attentive people remember what you're going through and the next time they're around you, they ask you about it. It's wild. They text you about it during the week. They call you about it. Hey, the most attentive Christian people, they pray for it. My goodness. How wild is that? And the Lord calls us to be hospitable in this way. I want you to take this home. First thing you need to see to take home, Disney lied to you. Love, dema- love demands from us. Love asks from us. Christian love powers through feelings. You won't always feel it, but because you are in Christ, you will always do it. Love is covenantal. There is desire at first sight, but there is no such thing as love at first sight. L- deep, lasting love is built on covenant. It's built on promise. It is built in the trenches. It's built during the difficult times. It's built when the rubber meets the road. It's built when all things are going wrong. That's when love is built. Love is not built in the gushy moments. True love, when it overcomes the worst, is undefeated. Undefeated. You know how I feel about funerals. Most of you do. I'll do a million funerals before I do a wedding. All you have to do at a funeral, this is all you have to do. In my my perspective. Say kind words about the human. Say kind words about their life. Preach Jesus and be present. If you're present, you say kind words, true words, kind words, and you talk about Jesus... You built a relation. You built a relationship with that person that is almost undefeated. You have to do a lot to mess that up. It's the same way in foxholes. You're present with people. You support that person. There is a love that is almost undefeated. And all of this love is the most natural expression of being in Christ. Pray with me today. Lord, you are, man, you give us everything we need. It's so plainly in front of us. Help us to grasp it. 
Help us to take hold of it. And to do as unto the Lord. Thank you for being the perfect demonstration of love. Help us to honor you with our love. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.